Hello, everybody. I'm so excited to be back. This is the next installment in a devotional series on the entire book of Revelation, and we're still pretty near the beginning. Today, we're talking about the second letter out of the seven letters that happened at the beginning of the book of Revelation. This is the letter to Smyrna. And today's live stream slash podcast, if you're listening later, is going to be a little longer than normal. We're going to cover five pretty big topics. One, we're going to read the letter and just give a little background. And that is in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. Then we'll explain the phrase, synagogue of Satan. Next, number three, we're going to talk about how to not be afraid when bad things happen. That's an instruction in this letter. And I figure we should get practical and talk about how the heck we're supposed to not be afraid. Sometimes that's hard. (laughs) Number four, I'd love to also address what is the crown of life? And there are actually two popular opinions on what the crown of life is. So I'll just present them both and let you do the research and decide for yourself from there. And then number five, I wanted to tack on at the end a little bit of information about the spirit realm. What are fallen angels and are there different types? Because in our modern Christian culture that a lot of us find ourselves in, all these kind of spirit beings get lumped together into just one big title and we call them all demons and we move on and we never look into the specifics. But there's actually a lot of information in the Bible and in the extra biblical texts that confirm the things in the Bible that there are different you know types of spiritual entities in the spirit realm. So let's start with number one, the letter to Smyrna. That's the second stop on the mail route because John, the writer of the book of Revelation, wrote the letters in the order that they would be received on the mail route when they got sent out. So Revelation 2, verse 8 through 11 says, a message to Smyrna. Here's the amplified version. Verse 8, and to the angel, the divine messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of the first and the last absolute deity, the son of God, who died and came to life again. I know your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. And how you are blasphemed and slandered by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And in the Amplified, the brackets say they're Jews only by blood. They don't believe and truly honor the God whom they claim to worship. End of bracket. Verse 10, fear nothing that you are about to suffer. What? Be aware that the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested in your faith, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. This is a bad newsletter, isn't it? Well, until we get to this. Be faithful to the point of death, even if you must die for your faith. And I, Jesus is talking, I will give you the crown of consisting of life. He who has an ear, let him hear and heed what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes the world through believing that Jesus is the Son of God will not be hurt by the second death. And the Amplified Version adds a parenthesis here, the lake of fire. So that's the letter. That's Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Here is that same passage in the message paraphrase. Okay, this version says to Smyrna. Write this to Smyrna, to the angel of the church. The beginning and the ending, the first and final one, the once dead and then come alive, speaks. 
I can see your pain and poverty, constant pain, dire poverty, but I also see your wealth. And I hear the lie in the claims of those who pretend to be good Jews, who in fact belong to Satan's crowd. Fear nothing in the things you're about to suffer, but stay on guard. Fear nothing. The devil is about to throw you in jail for a time of testing, 10 days. It won't last forever. Don't quit, even if it costs you your life. Stay there believing I have a life crown sized and ready for you. Are your ears awake? Listen. Listen to the wind words, the spirit blowing through the churches. Christ conquerors are safe from devil death. Okay, that is the message paraphrase. Okay, so here's a little background on this place called Smyrna. It was a city on the western coast of Asia Minor. Okay, so it's in modern day Izmir. 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 I actually looked up online how to pronounce this and everyone was all over the place. So it's one of those. And that's in Turkey, which they actually just changed their name to Turkey. And I'm not sure I'm saying that right either. So back in the day, both Jewish and Greek Christians existed, coexisted there in this major city, of course. And this letter from John, it, you know, stopped here at the second stop on the mail route, which is about 40 miles from Ephesus, the first stop. It had... Smyrna had a harbor, paved roads, schools, fancy buildings. It was quite a city. Many historical accounts also denote pretty nasty persecution against early Christians in Smyrna, mostly from Jewish groups there. For instance, when the famous church bishop Polycarp was martyred in year 155, it was because supposedly because self-identified Jewish groups had demanded his death and brought him to the Roman Empire. So that leads us to our next discussion point. What is the quote synagogue of Satan that John points out in this letter? Now, it's always a little bit tricky to address a topic that puts a group of Jewish people in a bad light. Because if you look at history, the history of the world, Jewish people have been so targeted, so persecuted, so horrifically, you know, genocided over the centuries, time and time again. It's in, it's it's insane. It's horrible. So I could see how some twisted people would take this letter and create some sort of anti-Semitism out of it. So I'm just putting the disclaimer here that that's not what John's doing and that's not what he's about. So let's talk about it, because John is the author of this letter, and he is a Jewish person, a Jewish Christian, and he's upset with a group of Jewish non-Christians for how they are treating a group of Jewish Christians. So this is an insider conversation. You've got all Jewish people with all different opinions in this in the context of this letter, and John is calling out a group of his brothers and sisters, ethnically, and in, in his faith history, for not even following their own faith, the way they're acting against other people that have different beliefs than them, but share the same ethnicity, having them killed, having them murdered. He's saying they're not really Jewish at all. If they're doing that, they're not following Torah, right? That's a synagogue maybe, but it's a synagogue of Satan, synagogue full of murderers. That's what he's saying. Okay. He's not saying all Jewish people are evil. (laughs) Okay. Just, 
in this day and age where I've seen some crazy stuff online, unfortunately continuing this same kind of anti-Semitic rhetoric that you hear repackaged over and over again throughout history, I feel like I should just clarify that. So when he says synagogue of Satan, he's talking about a specific group of Jewish people who are willing to throw these Christians into jail, report them to the Roman government, get them killed. It's horrible. It's persecution. Okay. And the Torah, the law that Jewish people were supposed to be following said to treat other Jewish people with justice. So that's why John is saying they can't call themselves Jewish at all then if they're going that far right? They were going beyond their right to break fellowship and kick out the Christians from their synagogue. That would have been their right. They could disagree about the Messiah, right? They were hatefully turning Jewish Christians over to the Roman government for punishment and torture and execution, right? They were in league with an oppressive government. They were partnering with Satan at that point. This label that John's putting on that particular synagogue, it feels similar to when Jesus told some of the Pharisees Your father isn't Abraham. You think it is, but it's actually the devil because you lie like him, right? Remember that? Okay, so that kind of explains the synagogue of Satan phrase. John uses real strong language, and this isn't the only spot in the book that he does so, but that's what he means. And you could see how it kind of seems justified considering the crazy actions that were taking place in Smyrna against the church. Next, the letter tells us that it's important not to fear. Okay, this is not something I'm historically very good at practicing. So I thought I would address it and share with you guys some things that I'm learning about how to not fear when you're going through bad and hard things. So we get this command, which means it's possible. Okay, God doesn't command you to do something that's not possible. Now, of course, without God, it's going to be impossible. But with God, what did Jesus say? All things are possible. So it is possible to live in this life free from fear. What do I mean by that? What does that look like? Okay, how to not fear. There is a healing from these earthly memories, these records, this hurt, this pain, this loss, this agony, and this hardship that we store as trauma in our brains and bodies. It's ultimately not God's perfect will for us that those things remain in us. In fact, he wants to renew us and transform us by the renewing of our mind, which means these things leave us. We get to leave them in the past. We don't get this. We don't have to have this tie with our trauma. We don't have to live in fear because of the past or because of experiences or because of even our current situation. Okay, 1 John 1 verse 7 tells us that if we really walk in the light, that is live each and every day in conformity with the precepts of God, as he himself is in the light, we have true unbroken fellowship with one another, right? He's with us. We are with him. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin by erasing the stain of sin, keeping us cleansed from all of sin's forms. So the blood of Jesus has the power, okay, to completely erase the effects of sin. That includes fear. That includes trauma. The blood of Jesus is so powerful that we can walk through life without fear. The way towards that is oneness with God, conformity to God's ways, including our thoughts, including our beliefs. Now, my friend, Hiwa, if you listen to the podcast faithfully, you've heard a little 
audio clip of him in the past. And I want to bring him on to talk more about this in the future in one of our additional inner healing episodes. But that might be after this revelation series. We'll see. But Hewa teaches that it's all about identity. So walking through life without fear. Okay. And this is someone who doesn't care if he's around someone with COVID. He knows he's not going to get it. This is someone who casts out demons kind of regularly. Okay. This is who this guy is. He's saying it's all about identity. The blood of Jesus works supernaturally to erase all sin, all injury, all hurt, all trauma, all, all anything that falls short of the glory of God existing in us and us being one with the Father. Our glorified state is how we're going to be in heaven. And we're called to walk into that even here and now. There's, of course, a psychological aspect to trauma, right? Neural pathways, as well as DNA gets involved sometimes. But we can ask the Lord. I know this is going to sound insane, especially if you're a newer Christian, but I am starting to walk in this and it's real. Okay, this is what I can tell you. You can ask the Lord to make you unoffendable, immovable untriggerable. Have you ever wondered why two people can walk through the same experience and one gets traumatized and the other one doesn't? This often relates to the past, what they've walked through previously, right? Aces, childhood adverse experiences, and it's because of our internal beliefs. So we have to ask God to do the work of deprogramming the trauma. Most triggers are three-layered, Hiwa teaches. Sometimes it's only two layers, but Often the top layer is the offense, the thing, the adverse experience in your life that's happening or whatever. The middle layer is a fear. And then the foundation layer is a belief that causes that fear. It's a false identity. It's a value system that's out of alignment with God's truth. It's a human construct that's a response to the sin system instead of a response to the kingdom. In other words, he calls it a defilement of the soul because he quotes that verse a lot where Jesus says, it's not what you put in your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart, your soul, that defiles you. So there's defilement that can be in us and that can come out and that that's our internal beliefs, okay? So this is potentially why an event can traumatize one person more than the next. This is why one person can walk away from a messed up situation less offended than another. It's the heart's reaction that will bless or defile one's self. This is what my friend Hiwa teaches. But sometimes it happens so quick that we think it's an external event that's literally causing it. So Jesus ruled over his internal life, right? When he walked the earth, that's how no sin got stuck or got in. No man could injure or kill him except that he laid down his own life as well, interestingly. And he told the enemy, you have no place in me. Meaning Jesus told the accuser, you have nothing to grab onto here. Nothing to work with because I'm completely aligned with the truth of God's kingdom, right? So when we're triggered, when we're offended, when we're fearful, we need to dig a layer deeper and find the foundational belief. What is causing me to get triggered, to react this way, to begin to operate in fear. And it's not like we're judging ourselves and condemning ourselves. It's like, we're curious, get curious about what you might be believing and what God might want to be, to, to give you instead to believe, to replace that belief. Maybe it's a victimhood mindset. Maybe it's an internalized situation from childhood, whatnot. Okay. You can replace it with a truth from the kingdom like this. 
Man is not my source or my security. How about that one? Or like this, no one can cause or threaten me loss or injury. Injustice does not overcome me. God is my source. I'm complete in him. God makes up every deficit plus a lot more. Others are not superior to me or a threat to me. If we truly had that mentality deep in our soul and our hearts and our subconscious minds, a lot less stuff would bother us. Okay, so that's a big part of stopping fear. Maybe you have some fear around finances. The belief that's out of alignment with the word there is, of course, the scarcity mindset or the belief that God's not going to provide. And maybe that comes from an experience where you didn't have enough, you were hungry, or you got kicked out of some housing or something gnarly happened. And now your human body response is to feel afraid when things are looking tight again, when things are looking scarce again. What if that's a huge invitation to worship? What if that's a huge opportunity to invite God to reprogram your deep beliefs and teach you about his abundance, teach you about his provision, teach you about his kingdom. There's so many examples I could give, but that's how we get rid of fear in our lives. Does that make sense? It's our deep beliefs. So these people in Smyrna are encouraged not to be afraid, even though they're about to face persecution. So it's not about the situation. Some of them might lose their lives, but there's a way, even then, to not be afraid. Have you ever watched someone so strong in their faith face a gnarly diagnosis, cancer or something with very little fear. Now, fear is pretty natural and pretty understandable, especially in circumstances like that. So if you struggle with fear, so do I. (laughs) And it's not helpful to be hard on ourselves, especially with someone who has a background of self-hatred like me. I just don't do that anymore. But it's exciting to know that I'm not stuck I'm not doomed in this life that I've known before where fear is always bubbling in the background. I've tasted and I've seen, I've stepped into glimpses of freedom from fear, even with gnarly stuff happening. And I know it's possible and I want more of that. And I know God is inviting me into a life where I'm delivered from fear, even in the face of the most gnarly battles. And I want that for you too. All right, next topic. The crown of life is mentioned in this letter. Jesus is telling this church, I have a life crown waiting for you if you stay faithful through this tribulation. We see in this whole letter that spiritual wealth is more valuable than physical wealth, right? He says to them, I see your poverty and I see your pain. Yet, I also see your great wealth, your spiritual wealth. Now, the crown of life might fall into a type of spiritual wealth, right? A crown of life is a spiritual reward or award. The Amplified Bible calls it the crown consisting of life, a crown made out of life. And of course, we know God is going to give these martyrs in this persecuted community life even after they die. We know that. But many Bible teachers also say that the crown is something different. It's like, in addition to the eternal life that every believer is going to get, a crown in scripture is often a way that Jesus honors certain believers. There's a crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4, 8. 
There's a crown of glory in 1 Peter 5, 4. There's others. The Greek word Stephanos, crown, can also be translated like a reward, like a laurel wreath. Think Greek Olympics. Remember the laurel wreath crowns that they wore? And many theologians think that these crowns will be given out during a moment in the future called the judgment seat of Christ. But some people have had visions and experiences where this type of crown is already being put on them in the spiritual, like in heaven. So I don't know. So it might be the case that for any believer who finds themselves in a tribulation or a persecution situation and is able by God's strength to persevere and to stay faithful no matter what, they'll receive this additional reward which I'm sure is cooler than just some leaves tied together because in heaven, everything is cooler. (laughs) So Jeremy Myers from RedeemingGod.com says, quote, it will probably not be an actual crown or ring of leaves, but it will be some sort of special blessing, honor, privilege, or recognition in the future eternal reign of Jesus, end quote. And if a follower of Jesus is not able to persevere and stay faithful during this kind of difficult situation, My personal opinion is they'll often still get to enter eternal life. But other theologians, here's the second opinion on the crown of life. Other theologians believe that the crown referenced in this letter to Smyrna is actually eternal life. Chapter 2 verse 11 seems to relate the crown to eternal life by describing an escape from the second death. That means the judgment, the condemnation, the lake of fire. So the eternal, you know, lack of eternal life with God. So you escape that by getting eternal life with God. So they, some people think the crown is that. And in 3.11, which we'll look at soon, Jesus instructs the Philadelphian church to make sure that no one takes their crown. The implication being that there were people who wanted them to renounce their faith altogether. So I guess there's an argument to both sides of this debate to be made. So James 1 verse 12 also mentions the crown of life. It says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So here it does sound like the crown is that we escape the second death. Okay, I want to rabbit trail on purpose here for a moment. Now that we've talked about the crown of life and what it could be and what it could look like, let's talk about the second death that we're escaping. So there is, of course, opinions on this too, because Christianity is a diverse mosaic of belief. There's something called annihilationism, and there's something else called eternal damnation. Okay, so you either believe in annihilationism or eternal damnation, meaning you either believe that people who die apart from God and don't live eternally in his presence in heaven are extinguished or exist forever in consciousness, okay? They either cease to exist or they don't cease to exist throughout eternity. Okay, so Wikipedia explains it like this. I'm just going to quote Wikipedia. In Christianity, annihilationism, also known as extinctionism or destructionism, is the belief that after the last judgment, all damned humans and fallen angels, including Satan, will be totally destroyed, cremated, their consciousness extinguished, rather than suffering forever in hell. Annihilationism stands in contrast to both the belief in eternal torment and the belief that everyone will be saved. Okay, so those are two incongruent beliefs. However, it is also possible to hold a partial annihilationism, believing that unsaved humans to be obliterated 
or cremated, but demonic beings to suffer forever. Annihilationism is directly related to Christian conditionalism, which is the idea that a human soul is not immortal unless given eternal life. Interesting, huh? Annihilationism asserts that God will destroy, cremate the wicked, leaving only the righteous to live on in immortality. Thus, those who do not repent of their sins are eventually destroyed because of the incompatibility of sin with God's holy character. The belief in annihilationism has appeared throughout Christian history and was defended by several church fathers, but it has often been in the minority. It experienced a resurgence in the 1980s when several prominent theologians, including John Stott, argued that it could be held as a legitimate interpretation of biblical text by those who give supreme authority to scripture. Earlier in the 20th century, some theologians at the University of Cambridge, including Basil Atkinson, supported the belief. 20th century English theologians who favor annihilation include Bishop Charles Gore, William Temple, 90th Archbishop of Canterbury, Oliver Chase Quick, chaplain to the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1933, and Ulrich Ernst Simon, and G.B. Cared. I don't know a lot about all these famous theologians, but those are some big ones. Annihilationists base their belief on the exegesis of scripture, some early church writings, historical criticism of the doctrine of hell, and the concept of God as too loving to torment his creations forever. They claim that the popular conceptions of hell stem from Jewish speculation during the intertestamental period. Belief in an immortal soul, which originated in Greek philosophy and influenced Christian theologians, and also graphic and imaginative medieval art and poetry. Okay, end quote. That was all from Wikipedia. So if you have a modern North American evangelical background like I do in my faith, you may not have heard a ton about annihilationism. I feel like of all these churches that I go sing at and that I've been a part of and that I interact with in all these cool, beautiful, fun ways, what I've heard from stage the most is be separated from God, quote, for eternity, or spend eternity in hell. I've heard these phrases, but I've never heard both presented in an easily explained way. Some Christians believe that souls exist apart from God forever in eternity. Others, other Christians believe that those who do not unite themselves with the Father are void of life and therefore do go extinct. Over the years, I've leaned more in that direction. Just put my cards on the table. I, I think some, it's not sustainable to me to think that a human soul could survive that forever. The voidness of God, I don't see how that's possible, but I don't know. In conclusion today, I'm going to do the conclusion before the, the rabbit trail on angels. Okay, so here's the main conclusion. Here's the devotional moment. Here's the application. Then we're going to geek out about angels and demons. In conclusion, anytime we can reframe and zoom out and the spirit of God can remind us that this inch that we're living on earth right now is an inch of an infinite rope and only the very beginning for us and that there is such good to come. It can be such an encouragement, especially because this life right now does include a lot of suffering. Knowing and meditating on the fact that this is not the end can actually lift our spirits quite a bit. It can give us grace, it can give us patience, and it can draw us closer to our eternal God. Jesus doesn't always rescue me out of hard times. Don't know about you. 
but he walks with me through them. And for those of us who have decided that friendship with this amazing, incredible, loving God is even more important to us than life itself, we end up receiving the most epic foreverlasting life on top of what we have already chosen to pursue. The crown of life. Life forever with a generous God who shows us favor, who invites us in, who welcomes us into his kingdom, which is perfect and good. There's no losing and there's no outgiving when it comes to our great God. This church in Smyrna was really going through it. I wouldn't have wanted to live in that time and that place and try to follow Jesus like they had to. No one would choose that. Unimaginable pain, unimaginable poverty and loss. Yet, what do you think is bigger? The suffering we go through on this earth, which is huge, or the goodness of God who can deliver us out of that trauma? What do you think is bigger? Do you think your trauma is too much for him? Too deeply rooted? Too complicated? Too dark? Do you think God's intimidated at all by our stories or our mistakes or our tragedies? Or do you think that he's so unbothered by everything the enemy has tried to set up on this globe because he's so much higher and better and his love is so much bigger than anything we could walk through here? The reason I can go through gnarly things unafraid is because I know that it it can't outweigh his goodness. Whatever I walk through and however it traumatizes me, he can undo it. He can fix it. He can even redeem it. He can even use it for good. There's no losing with him. Do you get what I'm saying? That's the victory we have in this life. And look at where you're headed. There is a place with no tears. There's a place where you don't have to be apart from God in any way for a second. His love completely embraces, envelops, and overtakes you and heals you inside now. That's where we're going. Okay. So let's geek out about angels and demons and then we'll call it a day because I've been on here for like, I don't know. It's not even telling me my time on this screen, but it's been a while. So here's my side note about the angelic realm. Since this letter is full of spirit realm stuff, I wanted to read you a few quotes to teach you about the spirit realm that John is experiencing and describing. Here's A quote from Chaplain Stevens from Freedom Bible College. He says, angels fall into two categories, the unfallen and the fallen angels. Okay, unfallen angels, meaning those who have remained holy throughout their existence and accordingly are called holy angels. Okay, that's most of them. In scripture, generally when angels are mentioned, it is the class of holy angels in view. By contrast, the fallen angels are those who have not maintained their holiness, right? Holy angels fall into special classes, and certain individuals are named and mentioned. Michael, the archangel, or archangel, depending who you ask, archangel, is likely the head of all the holy angels, and his name means who is like unto God. He appears in Daniel 10.21 and 12.1, and 1 Thessalonians 4.16. He appears in Jude 1.9, and Revelation 12, we'll get there, 7 through 10. Gabriel is one of the principal messengers of God, his name meaning hero of God, and Gabriel was entrusted with important messages, such as those delivered to Daniel, Zechariah, and Mary, remember in Luke 1. 
Most holy angels are not named in the Bible, but are described only as elect angels, right? Like in 1 Timothy 5, 21. The expressions principalities and powers seem to be used of all angels, whether holy or fallen. You can find those descriptions in Luke 21, 26, Romans 8, 38, Ephesians 1, 21, Ephesians 3, 10, Colossians 1, 16, Colossians 2, 10, Colossians 2, 15. I think is what he means there. And 1 Peter 3, 22. Some angels are designated as cherubim, which are living creatures who defend God's holiness from any defilement of sin. Those are found in Genesis 3, 24, in Exodus 25, 18, and 20. And seraphim are another class of angels, holy angels, mentioned only once in scripture in Isaiah 6, 2 through 7. I don't know if he's right about that. I think the seraphim are alluded to in other points of scripture, but I would have to research that. So I don't know, maybe he's right. He says they're in Isaiah 6, 2 through 7, and are described as having three pairs of wings. They apparently have the function of praising God, being God's messengers to the earth, and are especially concerned with the holiness of God. Most of the references to holy angels in scripture refer to their ministries, which are broad. Holy angels were present at creation, the giving of the law, the birth of Christ and his resurrection, the ascension, and they will be present at the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. In stark contrast to the company of holy angels, the fallen angels are also innumerable, though considerably less than the holy angels, and are described as fallen from their first estate. Okay, now he says, led by Satan, who was originally a cherub, the fallen angels defected. They rebelled against God and became sinful in their nature and their work. Fallen angels have been divided into two classes, those who are free, quote-unquote, and those who are bound. Of the fallen angels, Satan alone is given particular mention in the Bible. Debatable. When Satan fell, John 8, verse 44, slash Luke 10, 18, he drew after him one-third of the angels. Of those, some are reserved in chains awaiting judgment. 1 Corinthians 6, 3, 2 Peter 2, 4, Jude 1, 6, and the remainder are able to roam and are the demons or the devils who references made throughout the New Testament, right? Mark 5, 9, Luke 8, 30, 1 Timothy 4, 1, lots of places. They are Satan's servants in all his undertakings and share his doom. Matthew 25, 41, Revelation 20, verse 10, end quote. Now, I want to quote from Michael Heiser because he is also an expert on the demonic realm and how it's categorized and the history of it. And if these two were in the same room, I don't think they would agree on every little thing. But here's what Michael Heiser says in his book, Demons, about how demons and fallen angels are often considered different things. He says, quote, this notion the demons and fallen angels are exactly the same, is ubiquitous in popular Christian books and preaching. It is both on target and misguided. The statement fails to account for a number of items in the biblical text and the development of biblical thought about the powers of darkness. In the Old Testament, angel is a functional term. It is, in effect, a job description. This circumstance changes in the Second Temple period in the New Testament, where angel becomes a term used predominantly to distinguish loyal supernatural beings from evil, rebellious ones. The devil, Satan, can have, quote, angels on his side, like in Matthew 25, 41, 
or in Revelation 12, 9, which in totality of good versus evil would mean that demons, part of Satan's kingdom, can be considered fallen angels, right? Nevertheless, demons are consistently cast as disembodied spirits of the dead Nephilim and their giant clan descendants. Have you ever heard that whole thing? Those spirits are offspring of the angels that sinned before the flood. So he's saying the demons cannot be those fallen angels if they're their offspring, right? Consequently, while a term like fallen angels may be used correctly in discussing demons, it is too often used simplistically and inaccurately, end quote. So there's different histories behind different entities, and sometimes they're all called fallen angels, sometimes they're all called demons, but it's debatable whether we should lump them all together when there are some specifications that could be delineated and made, right? So in other words, there are different bad divine beings. There were more than one rebellion, right? Because in Genesis 3, you get the first rebellion, which was one divine being, the serpent, and two humans, Adam and Eve. Then three chapters later in Genesis 6, you get another rebellion that involved different beings that are currently imprisoned until the time of the end in the abyss, right? Then there are the gods of the nations, the Shadim, in the Babel rebellion. This is all the book of Genesis, all these Rebellions have different entities involved in them. You can fast forward to Jesus encountering different demons in the Gospels. They are often considered the disembodied spirits of the watchers, right? Many believe these are the ones that tie back to the book of Enoch and to Genesis 6. Example of that would be like Luke 4. But in contrast, in I think it's 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is referring to the lower tier gods instead. Those are different. So that's a whole world. I think I might do a future podcast episode about the different principalities and rankings and types of spiritual beings um, on the good side and on the bad side. But for now, I just wanted to throw all this out there to show you guys that may be newer to the topic that there's a whole discussion and a whole lot of information in the Bible that we can dive into about these entities and their history and how they operate and how they work and why and where they came from and where they're going. The angelic realm is real. It affects our lives and the Bible teaches us about it. So that's a really fun, cool topic. Of course, I recommend Michael Heiser's book entitled Demons. There's another book entitled Angels. explains all of this very thoroughly in a way that I am not currently capable of doing. (laughs) And I'm excited to dive more into those books myself as well. well. And then, of course, his book, The Unseen Realm, explains why there is an unseen realm, why there's an angelic realm, and uh, why the Bible is actually referencing it quite currently, uh, quite frequently, in ways that we sometimes miss in our modern way that we tend to read. So again, I mean, I already mentioned the main point is keeping in mind where we're going. We have heaven to look forward to. And if you find that you can relate on some level to the suffering of the church in Smyrna in the first century, Asia Minor, whether it's the type of poverty and the type of pain and the type of loss and the type of danger that they were facing or some other 
suffering. Maybe it's a long-term thing that you're just having to carry in this life, at least right now. The words of Christ that encouraged that church can encourage us today. He says, I see, I know. And sometimes that can be so helpful and such a relief that he completely sees, knows, understands, and feels with you as a 100% empath the thing you're walking through. He's not just watching from a distance. He's in you. He's experiencing it in you, with you. If you have oneness with Christ, you are never, you're literally never alone. And even if we get freaking killed, okay, even if the worst case scenario happens to you, you don't have to be afraid of that. Don't make it such a big thing in your head that you live your life trying to avoid it. I mean, try to live. I want you to live. But don't let it paralyze you and don't let it keep you from your calling. And don't let it keep you in some sort of safe, paranoid life. The things we suffer in light of where we're going and the eternity we get to live in God makes them not that big of a deal. And that's not to say that I need you to go ahead and ignore your pain and uh, suck it up and move on. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. I'm saying that as you walk through it, because you got to feel it to heal it, as you walk through it, you're not alone. And you are not going to be overcome by this. That's the promise. Okay, so let's pray. God, I just want to pray for anyone who's walking through suffering right now. And anyone who can relate in any way to this church in Smyrna, we need your presence. We need your healing. We need your help. We cannot stay faithful to you without you empowering us to do so. We need you to take our hand and walk with us through every hard season and every hardship. We need the power of your presence. We need your grace. And your word promises that your grace is sufficient for us. Your power is actually made complete in our weakness. You're actually close to the broken in a special and unique way. So God, we boast in our weakness. We're no longer terrified of the horribleness that may come into our lives. Because you work everything for good. What, what is there left for us to be afraid of? God, I pray you'd empower us with a boldness and free us from fear. Help us walk with the type of confidence that you did as you walked the earth, Lord. And you did ultimately lay down your life. But wow, what a life you lived. Such power and such fruit. And we know you're calling us to that same type of life in you. Don't let us... Stop short of what you're calling us to, God. Don't let us think that the hardships are going to keep us from living your will and living, you know, obedient to you. We can always do that by your strength. So pray your presence would comfort and, and fill us to overflowing today. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen.